Would you please join with me in prayer? Lord, we're grateful that we've come to this time of the year where we can look at these two directions where you are taking us. And we look forward to celebrating the birth of your son in our lives once again this upcoming Christmas season. And as we prepare, O Lord, and we look at this great text which launches our Advent season, may we look at the deep truths of it and think your thoughts. May my words be yours, that you would bend our wills to your own, and that you would take every single one of our hearts and set them on fire with love for you and for your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, the texts that we have for the first Sunday of Advent in our lectionary are designed to give us great hope. We have that great text in Isaiah, which reminds us that we're God's people. He hasn't forsaken us. And yet you come to this Mark 13 passage, and it just gets weird, right? Confess it. It's weird. You know, for some of us, it feels a little freaky. And there's not one scholar who has or has perfectly unraveled the deep mysteries of Jesus on the Mount of Olives. Um, It was G.K. Chesterton who said, It is only the fool who tries to get the heavens inside his head, and not unnaturally his head bursts. The wise man is content to get his head inside the heavens. We shall attempt the latter, quite frankly, this morning. And so, when I'm sure some of you, when you heard that text read, you start going, huh, not quite sure about that, you know. Because, you know, we don't have any trouble with the first coming of Jesus, you know. A star in the sky, shepherds, cute little lambs, a baby in a manger, that's all cool. But we got a lot of trouble with what we Bob's just read for us, right? Because instead of a star in the sky, we have stars falling out of the sky. We have the exact opposite. You don't have a baby here. You have a king returning to judge. The earth is shaking. The moon and the sun go dark. And just as literally all hell is breaking loose, quite frankly, as the Son of Man comes with clouds and great power and glory and so many in our culture they hear that and they go you're just taking this thing a little too seriously it's too freaky it's too apocalyptic it's too supernatural or whatever well to those who feel this way often rationalize it by looking at scripture and some scholars look at it this way they there's two different perspectives that occur when they start to feel that way about these types of texts. One approach is to say, well, look, Jesus was a great man, but even he was a product of his times, and he got his apocalyptic vision wrong. I mean, after all, look at verse 30. I tell you the truth, this generation will not pass away until all these things will happen. Well, we're still standing. Jesus was sure the end of the world would happen within his disciples' lifetime. He was a great man. But he was wrong about this apocalyptic vision, at least in this one place, they would say. Then there's the other view, which would say, well, this is a spiritual language, and they spiritualize it. And say, we read this, not literally, but 
spiritually, symbolically. So when Jesus says he'll be coming back within this generation in verse 30, or he's going to be coming back to earth, it means his spirit, his teaching will come to them, and his teaching and spirit will go from strength to strength. So we can spiritualize and symbolize this text. With all due respect, I would suggest to you, ladies and gentlemen, that both those ways of reading the text are wrong. When you read apocalyptic literature, oftentimes, both in the old and the new, there's multiple fulfillments going on to a grand fulfillment. You cannot read Revelation without recognizing that. Scripture, and Charles Dickens, teaches you to read. So I suggest, read large chunks of both. Because it makes you think. And it helps you to know different types of literature. And when you're reading apocalyptic literature, what you are seeing is multiple layered fulfillments. Because in that generation, in A.D. 70, Jerusalem was absolutely destroyed by the Roman general Titus. And they would have thought the end of the world was coming. But Jesus himself hadn't returned. That's why as covenant theology Anglican people, we believe that as soon as Jesus ascended, church history has begun. And we believe this is all the tribulation until he comes back. And so we believe that this is, in verse 26, and they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, that this is a literal, historical, visible, physical returning of Jesus Christ. And the doctrine of the second coming is a crucial part of the teaching of Christianity. And Advent forces us to it. Doesn't let us get away from it. It's not a fuzzy comfort beginning, is it? Yeah, it is. <laughs> for those of us who have trusted and look forward to this. But for those who struggle with it, you're thinking, all right, Gene, you're beating me over the head with this. It just seems kind of fanatical. You know, because your neighbors will say, if you believe this, there's two extremes that you'll do. Number one, you'll just disengage from the world. Jesus is coming. I'll just wait and keep my head up and watch and wait. And you, you're disengaged from the world. Or there's a second view which says you become really a judgmental person and you just hope that the rest of the world gets smited because you're right and they're wrong. You know? I want to suggest this morning that if you really understand what the teaching of the second coming is and its implication, no, it actually leads to the very opposite of those attitudes and those actions. For to dive into this builds sound theology and practical living. It reminds me of one of my greatest, my favorite uh, Peanuts uh, cartoons. Linus and Lucy are at one of those big picture windows in the 60s. You know, they used to have big picture windows in houses, right? Okay, some of us still have those. And so, and it's only like Charles Schultz can draw, it's a torrential downpour going on in the springtime. And they're sitting there looking out the window with their hands. And, and Lucy says, oh, wow, look at all that rain. What if it floods the whole world? And Linus says, it would never do that. Because in the ninth chapter of Genesis, God promises to Noah that that would never happen again. And he's given us a, the rainbow as a sign of that covenant promise. 
And Lucy, looking out the window, says, wow, you've taken a load off my mind. <laughs> and Linus says, sound theology will do that. <laughs> yeah, we think the third grader sucking his thumb in a blanket is all, and the kid comes out with that. I love it. Isn't that great? Because the natural questions that Christians have when we look at this text is, what difference does it make? Really? What difference does it honestly make if Jesus comes again? And two, how do we watch? What does that mean, Jesus, when you tell us to watch? Well, we're going to look at that. I invite you to open up with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 13. We've been here before, but we're going to look at it a little differently this time. And that's what we're going to look at. Number one, what difference does it make in my life and December 3rd, 2017, and, and what does it mean for me to watch? Well, what difference does it make? I mean, if I really believe this, what does it make? I would say it makes all the difference in the world if you grasp it, and there's three real practical ways that it helps me in my life. First of all, it will make a difference in all the world of your understanding of what's going on in the world in your attitudes about doing ministry and mercy and justice. Because the first impression you have in this passage is in verse 24. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And you think he's going to look up and you're going to see Jesus coming through the clouds. It didn't say he's coming through the clouds. It says he's coming what? in the clouds that matters why what does that mean in Genesis 1 2 and 3 God creates a perfect world and it's absolute paradise what makes it paradise is the presence of God with Adam and Eve because in this paradise God's overwhelming presence, beauty, power, and glory creates a place where there's no pain, no suffering, no brokenness. There's nothing that's dead. There's nothing that's broken. There's nothing that evil can even exist in the presence of God. That's why it was, pre that's why it was paradise, because God's presence was there. And we know when we read in Genesis 3 that Adam and Eve decided to be their own saviors and lords, the Bible says that the presence of God was withdrawn. This absolute and immediate presence of God was withdrawn from the earth, and the earth became like the dark side of the moon. It became a place of brokenness, death, disease, hunger, violence, injustice, and poverty. And it touches us all because God's presence was taken away. I hope you see that. And when you travel through the Bible, you see hints and glimpses of God's presence, though. In the book of Exodus, the presence of God appears and leads the children of Israel out of slavery into liberation. Do you remember? There was the pillar of cloud by day and the, the pillar of fire by night, right? That cloud was, there's a Hebrew word for it, the Shekinah. The kind of glory cloud, the radiance and brilliance and immediate presence of God in whose presence nothing was dead, nothing was diseased, nothing was imperfect. 
There was nothing that was evil in that tabernacle. So it comes down, and when it does, you get the glory of God. And what's happening in verse 26, they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. He's bringing the Shekinah peace of God back to the earth. He's bringing his presence. The end of death, the end of disease, the end of poverty, the end of destruction and injustice. It's an incredible illustration he immediately gives then in the fig tree. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch, verse 28, becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. You know, uh, there weren't many plants in Israel, nor even today at that time, that lost their leaves in the wintertime. Most of them just kept their leaves, but the fig tree lost its leaves. So the fig tree lost its leaves in the winter and only became back in the spring and summer. What Jesus is saying is, I am bringing the ultimate spring, the ultimate summer for you. The most glorious spring and summer you've ever seen in your entire life are a dim echo to what I'm going to bring to you. I'm bringing the ultimate sunlight after centuries and centuries and centuries of winter. And I'm going to make this world perfect again. So what's the doctrine of the second coming? It's that the purpose of Jesus Christ's salvation is the restoration and renewal of creation. And any one of us who yearn for that day seeks to make it a hint of that in our day by being a blessing to the world and meeting the needs that we can meet. It was a great joy to go with Marie this week to CRS and deliver all our food cars and all the, the Christmas toys that you guys obnoxiously gave to us. It was so much fun to play Santa Claus, you know, as we took all of Christ Church's stuff in which will be given away to kids that need. Now, that's a small thing, right? We can do practical things, too, but the reality is we care for that. And he knows what he says at the end of the passage. Stay awake. <laughs> Don't get spiritually sleepy. Because that's our tendency to get spiritually sleepy as we await his second coming. What is it? It's to, it's to live as if this really isn't going to happen. It's to live as if it doesn't matter, and I just become selfish, self-centered, and I don't pay any attention to the needs that are going on around me. Neil Plantinga, Plantinga, I don't even know how to pronounce this guy's name. He wrote a great book. <laughs> it was called Engaging God's World. And in it, he says, the second coming of Jesus is good news for people whose lives are filled with bad news. I want you to imagine if you're a, a Jew in Pharaoh's Egypt. I want you to imagine if you're a slave in the southern United States in the 19th century. I want you to imagine if you're a Christian in Syria today. Or you're a woman in a culture where if your husband gets mad at you, he can legally lock you up in a closet and call his buddies to come and rape you. It's legal. Or at least threaten. I want you to imagine if you're a Christian in sub-Saharan Africa today where AIDS has 
devastated whole populations. You see, when you hear the second coming of Christ, you don't yawn when you live in those situations. The person who wants justice and wants redemption, wants the kingdom of God and the coming of the king, and watches expectantly for it. Because they're a passionate follower of Christ and they're compassionate to the people where they live, work, and play. If our lives are too comfortable to want the coming of Jesus, all you have to do is look across the needs of the world and you will. It's natural to hope for ourselves and how healthy it is to do so, but it's unnatural to hope only for yourself. All right? Let's take care to stay alert, stand up, and raise our heads because this kingdom is coming. And Jesus' words are an antidote to our sloth as a disciple, to our sloth in meeting needs around us. If you kind of know Jesus is coming, you're not watching for it. You're not longing for it. And you're living in a bubble that doesn't even exist. He says, watch for the kingdom of God and yearn for it. Be expectant for it. Because as we do so, we too can be a blessing. That's the first reason why it makes all the difference. Second reason is it also helps us to watch our personal ethic, our personal behavior. Right? Verse 32. No one knows about the day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Can I, can I make this clearer? Number one, no one knows when he's coming. All right? Number one, it's certain it's going to happen. And number two, no one knows. You wouldn't know that about the evangelical prophecy business. I've been trying to dig it up. Someone this year said Jesus was coming. And they were wrong again. And they made millions no one knows, and he's coming. That's certain. But the reality is, when we recognize this, it changes the way you live your life. You can't say, no one sees what I'm doing. Because God does see what you're doing. It matters. And the way we live our lives. Because one day, Jesus will come, and there will be a God-sized floodlight on earth. your entire life, every word you've said, every word you've spoken, every thought you've thought, ouch. Right? Okay? And it changes. Okay, he's coming. Maybe I shouldn't do that. C.S. Lewis says it this way. He wrote a great essay called The World's Last Night. Precisely because we cannot predict the moment, we must be ready at all times. The sentry does not know at what time the enemy may attack, or the sentry does not know the time an officer might inspect his post. So he must be awake at all times. Not that we should always be running around in fear that the end might happen at any moment. We should be like an 80-year-old man. Hello, all 80-year-old and up. We should be like an 80-year-old man who needs, on the one hand, not to be always thinking about his approaching death, but he should always be taking it into account It would be criminally foolish not to have made his will out, and so on. 
You see, the true Christian life has a balance. And there's a joy in Christ to know when judgment day comes, I won't be judged. We're going to get that to in a second. But the reality is, in Christ, we're saved. In Christ, we're safe. And there's a balance as we await, not in fear, but in hopeful expectation, and therefore it changes the way I live my life. If we're not changing, if you're looking at your spouse and say, well, you knew who I was when you married me, you need to grow up. Because you're not 21 anymore. And Kimmy is on her third husband right now in me. All right? God bless her. You know? And I'm on third, my third Kimmy, quite frankly. That's just what it is. Those of you who are with the Avon Lake Group, we know that to be true. Because we discussed it in there. Oh my gosh, we change because we grow together and we're growing in Christ together. And the reality is we come to a place where we will allow God's floodlight to be upon us. You women know about this, you know. Sometimes you have the problem judging by artificial electric lights how your clothing or makeup really look by the full light of the sun. So you buy those mirrors, those real expensive mirrors. and they <laughs> Right? I speak from experience. Kimmy has one, you know. <laughs> Tim Keller states, we have to learn how to dress our souls, not for the electric lights of the present world, but for the daylight of the next one. The good dress is the one that will face that light, for that light will last forever. So two, it changes the way we live in our personal integrity and ethic. First, it changes the way we do mercy and justice. Last, it makes all the difference in our ability to forgive and make people peace with people who have wronged us. You know, that's not the case for everybody. Many of us, when we've been wronged, our, our default setting is to get back, to be resentful, and to hop up onto the throne of judgment, right? We do that. And I've found in the few times that I have counseled people about bitterness, resentment, and forgiveness... It's very helpful to take them to this passage in Mark 13. Some of you are thinking, well, remind me to never to come to you for counseling. <laughs> hey, just hear me out here, okay? When somebody wrongs you, automatically, you stop yourself unless you're going to do it powerfully. You run to the judgment seat of the world and you sit on it. What do I mean by that? Because you're thinking, well, Gene, God is on the judgment seat. Well, that's true. But there's another sense in which there's no one on the judgment seat of the throne of the world because Jesus hasn't come back yet to sit on it. We all sense that it's empty and things aren't the way they should be and things aren't put right and therefore we're the ones to make them right. So when someone wrongs me, automatically I get up on the throne of judgment and I judge them. And the way I live my life among them reflects that, right? And we, we know that they need to get what they deserve. And if we can't bring it out, we try to get somebody else to bring it out, or in the very least, we cheer that eventually, one day, they'll really get what they deserve. We put ourselves on the throne of judgment. And Francis Schaeffer says, but when we sit on the throne of judgment, it's like, God hanging a little visible tape recorder around our neck that we don't see our whole lives. Think of it this way. Imagine 
We judge people by everything that we say you ought to do. All right? And this little tape recorder is around my neck. And every time I say you ought, it starts to record me. From the time I'm born to the time I die. Every you ought is recorded for me. And then all of a sudden I die and I appear before the Lord and I'm expecting to be judged by the Ten Commandments or some other thing. And God says, look, I'm going to be really fair. I'm going to judge you not on my word, but on your judgment. And he takes off the recorder and I say, oh, Lord, I didn't know it was there. He goes, I know you didn't know it was there. (laughs) And he starts to play every time he's going to judge me by every time I told someone else what they ought to do. And no one can live up to even their own oughts, much less the oughts of the scripture. My friends, we're not meant to be on that throne. And if we're up on that throne, it will poison us. We need to give it up to the Lord and recognize that He is the one true judge. Because that's what Advent's all about. The coming of our King, who is the one, the only one, who deserves to be the judge. And when you get this, you'll, you'll get off the throne. You'll let him take care of this. And belief in this doctrine will change the way you look and engage society. It'll change the way you live with personal integrity and grant forgiveness to those who have hurt you. Now, we still have a problem, though, right? We have a judgment day that's coming. And in our heart of hearts, we really don't want it. (laughs) But if there's no judgment day, what hope is there for the world? Well, that's what watching is all about. Because watching is different than waiting. Okay? When you watch for something, when you were first dating your spouse, you, you really watched for them to come up, the front door, up to the front door. Matter of fact, you were really watching for them a half hour early. And you were ready, hopefully, to go. Right? That's what Jesus is trying to say here. Because the word coming, Jesus coming again, in the Greek is parousia, which means his presence. It gets across the idea that the second coming of Jesus will bring that ultimate sunlight which will heal everything. His ultimate presence, the Shekinah glory, brought to us. We'll get rid of all loneliness, the ultimate light to get rid of all darkness, ignorance, and evil. And what it means to watch is to first remember what he first came to do. Because on the cross, Jesus experienced not the infinite presence of God, but the infinite devastating absence of God. Because at the second coming, he's coming with light, and the first coming, he didn't come to bring judgment, he came to take our judgment. The first coming, he gets the absence of God in our place. He gets the rejection. He gets the death. He gets the darkness. And darkness came down on him. And he paid our penalty so we can get the presence, so we can get the love, so we can get the life, and we can get the light. And this is the good news. That the great judge of the universe was willing to be judged for us and that the great judge of the universe was willing to leave the throne, the judgment seat, and stand in the dock for us. It's a beautiful picture in Revelation 5, which was our reading in the daily office yesterday. 
John looks up on the throne, and what does he see? A lamb. A sacrificed lamb. Bloodied. But it's there he's sitting on the judgment seat. Why? Because he's taken our judge, judgment for us. That's the first phase of watching. For to know what it means to be a Christian is to say, I never stand in the judgment. I can never pass on my own. My judge has stood in the judgment for me and was willing to come and take that judgment for me. And now I'm moved by that. I'm changed by that. I can't stay as I am. And now I ask that you forgive me and accept me because what Jesus has done, not on my merits or anything that I've done. And if you do that, the next time you meet Jesus Christ, you will stand before him gloriously complete. Our New Anglican Catechism states it this way. I should anticipate with joy the return of Jesus as the completion of my salvation. The promise of his return encourages me to seek to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to live a holy life, and to share the hope of the new life in Christ with others. That's what it means to watch, is that we look back at the cross and we keep our heads up in confidence that as sure as the resurrection and ascension, he is coming again for us. Don't know when, but he's coming. So ladies and gentlemen, I want you to believe with me in the second coming of Jesus. I very much would like for you to with me to receive the judged judge of Jesus into your life. How do you stay on watch? Look at the cross. Look up. He is our Savior and our Lord. And he's coming again. And in so recognizing that, it will give you a passion for justice and mercy in our world. It will give you an integrity in your private life. And if you watch, you'll have the ability to forgive others for the wrongs they've done to you. And it will give you, and you'll do it all, with endless, complete hope. That's what this week's all about. Hope. Because sound theology has a way of doing that. The great hymn by Charles Wesley, which we're going to sing at the end that Brian has chosen for us, I think wraps it up well. Lo, he comes with clouds descending, once for favored sinners slain. Thousand, thousand saints attending swell the triumph of his train. Alleluia, alleluia, God appears on earth to reign. Watch with me. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful for this time of year which we can set aside our, our, our cares among the busyness of these days and recognize that once for all, you will come again. As Wesley wrote, you'll come with clouds descending once for favored sinners slain, and that's us who have placed their trust in you. Lord, if there be any among us who've never truly done that, I pray that this would be the day where we turn our lives to you and we would be numbered among the thousand, thousand saints attending swell the triumph of your train, the, the train of your robe, Lord. 
as we sing Alleluia, you will appear on earth to reign. We thank you for that, Lord Jesus. And we look for that with great anticipation. We yearn for it. And until that day, we have the hope to know that we're secure in you. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.